Hi, everybody, and welcome to this very special episode of the Comedy Podcast. I'm your host, Subisa Day. On this episode, I was joined by Bijan Elahi, a risk management author, educator, and consultant. Bijan walks through the differences between approaches to risk management in medtech and aerospace. He talks about risk control reduction, quantifying benefit and benefit risk, risk control measures, and what a good risk management process looks like. I hope you enjoy this episode with Bijan. I certainly learned a lot. Hello, Combi Nation. My name is Subi Sadeh. I've spent over a decade in medical device, pharma, and combination product development. Our industry feels complicated sometimes. Drugs, devices, clinical trials, submissions, sterilization, validation, design control, risk management, market access, reimbursement. The list goes on. My goal is mastery. So this podcast is to ask questions I have to people who may have the answers. Each week on the Combinate podcast, I talk to someone about their area to further understand and simplify. Whether you're a pharma person trying to understand the next wave of products, or a device person trying to navigate a pharma system you're unfamiliar with, or a newbie in both areas, I invite you to listen, and together we can simplify by combinating. My, my last job was at NASA. I was working on the space shuttle and doing space, for spacecraft systems engineering and safety risk management. Then I started giving lectures in certain conferences around the world. One of the conferences, after I was done talking, somebody from the audience came over, asked me if I could give him some help. The, this person was from the medtech industry. As aerospace is about 40 years ahead of aerospace medical technology industry in terms of safety and systems engineering. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll give you some help. So I gave him some advice and then they told their friends, they liked it, they called me. So I started getting more and more calls from various companies in the medtech industry asking for some advice, some help. And at some point, one of them said, hey, could you just work for us full time? So I should, yeah, okay, I'll do that. So I transitioned then from aerospace to medtech. You mentioned the 40 years ahead. How different are the two industries? And we perceive ourselves in medtech or in pharma as being very highly regulated. Did you find that, did you find a distinction there? There is a difference. There's a lot of similarities, but there's a difference. And it is, the difference is in medtech, what we do is risk management, which is acknowledgement that risk exists and we just have to live with it. We have to balance it against the benefits. Whereas in aerospace, that concept is not there. That in aerospace, we are trying to eliminate risk, remove hazards, remove failures, and make the system safe. And in aerospace, we do as much as we can to make the system as safe as possible, but there is no balancing that risk against benefits. In other words, there's no risk management, it's just risk reduction. I've heard you talk in the past about mishaps versus hazards, I think. I don't use the word mishap since I came to medtech. <laughs> yes, the, in aerospace, they use the word mishap, which is not the same thing as risk or harm. That's one of the you know, language differences between these two industries. The word mishap is from Mill Standard 882, and you don't find that anywhere in ISO 14971. 
is there any concept? So you mentioned the difference between the limit, the focus on eliminating risk versus contextualizing the risk versus the benefit, that being a framework difference. Are, is there yeah. a framework difference between harm versus mishap? Yes, a mishap is, and I don't remember now the definition from 882, since I don't look at it very often anymore, but a mishap is basically something, an untoward event, something you don't want to happen. Maybe you can lose a spacecraft or maybe you can crash in an airplane. That would be a mishap. It may be just loss of money, but in med tech, we typically deal with harm to human life. We talk about an injury or damage to a person's health. That's the definition of harm. So a mishap is not totally focused on the health of a human. And the reason I'm just not saying it's not perfectly clear is because ISO 14971 also mentions damage to property and the environment. Right. So it kind of leads over, but typically met in the med tech industry, people use ISO 14971 for management of risk to humans, not management of risk to property. And that's so, relatively new, right? That addition, which, that addition to the harm definition. I've seen it for a long time. Now, I think maybe it has been there from the beginning. The, in the proposition of, yeah, I have to go back to the first edition, which came out about 23 years ago to see. Sure. I just, I, I remember seeing it being a big SOP update at one of the companies that I worked at. And so maybe they just were missing it in the SOP. And back then I wasn't as, in, as into the QMS stuff, like the, what's behind the SOP. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have my first edition on hand. I have to look at it. No, I can't really answer you, but I, I believe that the definition of harm has been around at least since 2007, but maybe 2000 as well. But yeah, it's not something you don't see med tech companies typically use risk management for management of financial loss. Yeah. Which is the property damage, for example, but it's there. and. If there is a reason for it, it's just not very well used. I did have one product where I won't go into the details of the product itself, but basically there's a fluid exchange that happens and a significant amount of fluid is expelled from the body into a drain container. And we found that a design issue where what was holding the drain container together was not working. And so we were finding that there was damage to property where the drain container was basically emptying into people's homes uh -huh. when it was supposed to be closed. Okay. And so okay. that was an example where I learned about the harm to the harm where environment is contextualized. Yeah. And, and so you talked about the 14971 not having business risk, financial risk in mind. Are there... I'm always curious, are there any frameworks outside of the 14971 ICH? I'm wondering if you've seen other, just other yeah. approaches. There is another standard called ISO 31000. That's a general standard about risk, but it's not specific to med tech and safety risk management. It's general about risk. Uh, it includes business risk. So there are other standards, yeah, but in med tech, I stay focused on harm to human beings. That's if you're audited by a regulator, like a FDA, 
they're not going to challenge you on why are you losing money. The only challenge you is the only challenge you is are you harming people, and so that's the real focus with fourteen nine seventy one. Even though it is possible to use fourteen nine seventy one for other purposes such as financial or property damage, I have not seen it used for that purpose. Okay, so what I wanted to dive in with you, Bijan, is where do you find that most people struggle as far as risk management goes? I think a lot of there's a lot of confusion with understanding concepts of risk management. And one of the reasons that risk management is difficult is that it's an intersection of knowledge of different areas. It's an intersection of engineering, mathematics, statistics, and toxicology, physiology, quality, all kinds of disciplines, they have to work together. So bringing all this knowledge together in such a way that is coherent, that it's understandable and usable by all the parties, it's not easy. And another reason that risk management is difficult is that it's predictive. We are supposed to predict the future. And when we do pre-market risk management, we're supposed to predict what's going to happen to our patients, how likely is that, and then propose some actions to reduce the risk to them. And then on top of that, to provide objective evidence that these actions and decisions are effective in reducing risk. Actually, you have to see it, be able to tell the future and you're expected to be accurate or as accurate as humanly possible. Another difficulty with risk management is that we have to balance the benefit against risks and benefits and risks are not the same units. They're very different. So how do you balance it? It's generally a subjective decision, but you have to be able to defend that decision. And another area that I think people find difficulty with is this approach of reducing risks as far as possible, as this is the requirement of EU MDR. And it's one of the three approaches that is prescribed by ISO 14971 to reduce risk as far as possible. But the problem is that you don't know if you're, when you have gotten there. You don't know where it is as far as possible. The only way, the only time you really know is when you drop the risk to zero, which is typically not possible. People don't know how far they have to go. And they, even if they do everything they can, and then somebody thinks of something, let's say a year from now, somebody thinks of a new thing to do to even further reduce the risk. And that means you were not as far as possible. So you never know if you're there. And that, that's another one of the difficulties with risk management. So let's dive into each of those. So the predictive element about what's going to happen and demonstrating objective evidence that whatever you've implemented actually is effective in controlling what you predicted on the list. Where have you seen issues there? Is it more in the not taking the time to actually think out what's going to happen? Or is it more in the kind of risk control? Both. So prediction of risk is, has two elements. One of them is how likely is this event to happen? And then how bad is it? How severe is the outcome? As prediction is all about probabilities and you, how do you make a prediction that if this failure, if this device fails in this particular way, what is going to happen to the patient? First of all, how do you know what's the probability of that failure? You base that on your past history. Maybe you have been building this device for years or devices like it for years, and you have some data from the past you base the future on the reason you base your prediction of the future on the performance of the past. And 
as like in any investments that you made, they say past performance is no indication of the future performance. We don't know. We, we just make a best guess. That's just how the world works. There is variability. So that's one aspect of it. You may under or overestimate the probability of that failure. Then the next part is how bad is it? As people, different human beings have different physiologies and the same pathogen could cause different degrees of harm to different people. If you remember, for example, COVID-19, some people were totally asymptomatic. They didn't even know they were infected. And some people went all the way to death. So you can have a whole range of outcomes based on the same hazard. So the first part, we did the prediction of what's the likelihood of the hazard happening to and the patients getting exposed to it. And the next thing is that what's going to happen to them. Then it's a whole range of things that can have happen, that can happen. So you make the prediction and your predictions generally would never be perfect. In fact, I, I would be impossible for, I've never seen anybody who could say I've made a perfect prediction of the future. It's just, we just making our best efforts. And then based on that prediction, you uh, take certain measures to reduce that risk. I guess COVID would be a good example because everybody is still fresh with that. So we tell people to wash their hands, wear face masks, have social distancing. Remember all those things that we did to reduce the probability of getting exposed to this virus. If somebody's going to ask you to prove that those are effective, then you have to create tests. For example, you say, okay, this group of people decided not to wear masks and we had that, right? And then this group of people decided to wear masks and then you take data as to a thousand people that did not wear masks and a thousand people that did wear masks, what were the outcomes? And then you can say, based on this statistical analysis, I can say that the mask is effective in reducing the probability of infection. So this is objective evidence. It's work. It's not so easy. Yeah. Diving a little bit deeper around the prediction part. I think it's in 24971 where they show quantitative, semi-quantitative and qualitative approaches to probability. Do you yes. have a preference? Is it different use cases for each one? Yeah. I've always, I've used them all basically. And I just, I, it's hard to say which one is, which one works best because when you go to, I actually, I won't, I won't tell you what I think. I'll just leave it there. Yeah. So you asked me, which one do I prefer? I prefer the quantitative method. However, oh. the quantitative method takes some work because you have to produce the data, the numerical data to be able to do the quantification and quantitative analysis. So that's why in my experience, most companies don't go full quantitative. They go semi-quantitative. I would definitely shy away from qualitative because that is total guesswork, right? You're guessing how likely is for a harm to happen and you're guessing how, what, what kind of outcome can there be? It's, it's too much guesswork. Semi-quantitative is better, is better than qualitative and that you're using some amount of data, but you don't have precise data. You have general data. Maybe you say based on field experience, when we have this device failure, people typically experience and maybe a major degree of harm. I'm going to use the word major from 24971. And, and we have seen two out of a thousand people have experienced this major harm when this failure happened. So you, you can use that to do a semi-quantitative analysis which creates that matrix that you're familiar with, the two-dimensional matrix of occurrence versus severity. And people typically have three colors in it, the red, yellow, and green. So that's most commonly used. But my preference is for quantitative, which is what you truly have a P1 and a P2 as declined in ISO 14971, and you multiply them together. 
And the reason for my preference for quantitative method is that it yields itself to automation and assistance from computers. It, and it allows you to do objective risk evaluation. When you do quantitative method, you can set an acceptable risk limit and you set this limit ahead of time and you put it in your risk management plan. Then you go through your man risk management process, do all the computations. The computer will tell you whether your risk is acceptable or not. It's totally objective based on pre previously established criteria. Another reason for it is that it but, allowed, yeah. I was just going to say, so if I can just jump in, I personally really like the separation of the probabilities. I think it's a healthy exercise, but I have seen semi-quantitative inputs into that P1, P2, which, okay. which I think makes it, a, well, I, I, anyways, so that's what I've seen before in, in, yeah. in, in one system. I suppose from a quantitative standpoint, how have you ensured that the data inputs are good? Because I think the benefit is clear, obviously, that the you having clear numerical data, setting a, a clear bar, it becomes a yes, no exercise. You just need to control, make sure the inputs are good. But to, to the two out of a thousand, how do you know that's not underreported? How do you not know that that's overreported and so on? The P1, which is the probability of occurrence of the hazardous situation, you can derive that from field data. Initially, if you have, let's say, a brand new product, you're making it your best guess, right? So you're, yeah, because you can use reliability data to estimate the probability of your device's failure. So that, that part you can do. But then how likely are people to get exposed to the hazards that you require some field data? So initially, for in the, when you first release a brand new product, you may have to make some guesses. But then we have post-market surveillance that collects data to validate your initial guesses. And that's why your guesses are continuously getting improved and getting better and better as you observe the performance of the device in the market. What I was going to add is that one of the other beauties of the quantitative method is that you can answer the question. If, if someone asks, what is the likelihood that your device is going to cause death in patients? You can actually answer that question with a number. And you can answer, this is the probability of causing death, which would be catastrophic or fatal injury. This is the probability of causing critical injury. This is the probability of causing major injury. You can answer these questions for the whole device, including all other overall for all the individual risks. Have you ever had to defend against the, because a lot, maybe it, maybe it's an, maybe it's a non-issue, but I've seen before with the quantitative method, a concern being artificially lowering it based on only the data that you're seeing. So is there a safety factor that's typically added in to make sure you're Yeah, there some, there, there's a problem where when you use field data, there's a problem with underreporting and you probably are familiar with that. Events happen and sometimes clinicians don't report it or patients don't report it, particularly if these are of lower severity grades and negligible harm which is defined as inconvenience or temporary discomfort, it's likely that people are not going to call the company and say, I was inconvenienced by your device. So they would call you if they're injured, they've been hospitalized, but likely they were not. So there's underreporting. Right. So you do need to ameliorate that data with expert opinion when to accommodate certain, there's a certain amount of underreporting. That is true. The parts that you can be more certain about reporting is about the top three grades of severity, which is the catastrophic, critical, and major. Those three areas are more likely to be reported. Okay. So we talked about the probability part of 
the e equation. What about the severity of harm part of the equation? I know that the 24971 has that one, two, three, four, five, yeah. negligible to catastrophic. I've seen different <laughs> approaches to that, like a one, three, five, seven, and, 10. I've oh, seen one, one to 20. Wow. <laughs> and it's interesting whenever you're working with a design contractor, seeing just the, the differences in approaches. Do you have a preference one, one way? I have a personal preference. Yes. I like the five grade that table four of ISO 14, ISO 20, TR 24971 suggests. And a lot of companies use that, but of course, that's only a suggestion, even as stated in the report, in the technical report, you can use three, five, seven, even 20. I've never heard of 20 before, but yeah, five of these good. It wasn't, uh, because... by the way, it wasn't like a one, two, three, four, all the way up to 20. It was like a one, three, seven. Oh, yeah. Okay. Skip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just like the one okay. through 10, one through 10. Typically they have skips too, but. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is your question as to. You asked, what's my preference? My preference is a five grade. And what do we do with the P2 numbers? Is that what you're asking me? I'm trying to get at, if you were to put together a risk management process based on all that you've seen in other industries mm -hmm. and in our industry at a bunch of different companies and all the inputs that you have during the problem areas that people are dealing with, would you use the scoring rubrics that are in 24971 as they're written? Would you, would you manipulate them in any way? You can manipulate them in any way you like, but people tend to like to go with what's in their 24971 tables because it's commonly seen, understood. The regulators have seen it. So it's enough explaining to do. And they're actually pretty nice. I, I, so I just like the five class. The only thing that I have chosen to do is to change two words in that table from the 2007 version, the previous version of 24971 to the current version. They used to have the word catastrophic. It used to be catastrophic, critical, serious, minor, and negligible. And then in the latest version, they went from catastrophic to fatal. They offer two words and also serious. Also, now you can use, say serious or major. I like these two new words, the fatal and major, for two reasons. One of them is catastrophic just means really bad, right? In fact, that word is used in aerospace. So when we talk about a catastrophic aircraft failure, for example, it means the airplane crashed, a lot of people died. It just means really bad. But it could just mean that nobody died and it's just, it was really bad. But when you use the word fatal, it's clear. There is no ambiguity about what fatal means. So now I use the word fatal instead of catastrophic. In fact, if you look at my books, my, in my first edition, I used the first set of words. And then my new book, I say, I'm not moving to the new set of words. I'm using the word fatal for the highest severity class. And then for the middle one, it used to be serious, not the table the 24971 says you can say either serious or major. And I prefer major because the word serious is used in some of the other standards, IEC 62304, and it means different things. It means death or serious injury. So serious, if somebody is look, look using multiple standards and we have medical devices, the same electrical medical devices software, they would be using 14971 and 62304 at the same time. And they see the word serious. On one side, it means death or serious injury. On the other side, it means a moderate grade of injury, one that requires medical intervention. So it creates confusion. So now I've just transitioned over. Now I use the words fatal, critical, major, minor, and negligible. Maybe I went beyond your question, but I think this is good to know.
Yeah, no, that's helpful. So in moving on to what about risk control measures? Yeah, risk control measures, of course, they're supposed to be in three grades or three types. You can make your device safe by design or manufacturer. That's the best or most preferred one. And then the second preferred version is to put in protective measure in the design or the manufacturing. And the third preferred method is to put in information for safety or possibly training as needed. Of course, that makes a lot of sense. This is the order of effectiveness of risk controls. If you can eliminate a risk, that's the best thing. But sometimes you can't and you make it as safe as possible without the users needing to do anything and also without the users needing to being able to defeat that safety feature. For example, if you're creating an implantable device and you decide to make it from titanium, the user can't change the material of that, that implantable and make it unsafe. It is safe. There's nothing they need to know. There's nothing they need to do and they can't even change the design. But then there are other things that you can maybe put in a, a warning, I'll say a flashing red light comes on, but the user can ignore it if they want. It's, it's not as good as eliminating the hazard, but it's better than nothing. And then if you can't do any of the above, then you just explain to them, hey, use this device in this fashion, otherwise it could be unsafe. Where do you find people struggle with risk control measures? The, the confusion about which, which is which. Yeah. Firstly, the struggle is they would like to eliminate the hazards, but it's generally not possible. Sometimes it's possible, but in general, it's not so easy to eliminate a hazard. But then and then I don't know, another part is how can you tell the difference between a uh, safe by design, for example, a protective measure or between a protective measure and information for safety. For example, if you have an alarm, what is it? Is it a protective measure or is it information for safety? Because people have seen people call it both ways because an alarm, essentially, what is it doing? It's telling you something, it's giving you some information and expecting you to take some actions to be safe. So it fits the definition of information for safety, but in many places, even within the standards, they refer to alarms as a protective measure. To me, a protective measure is something that separates you from the hazard. If you think about a cap on a hypodermic needle, that's a protective measure because it separates you from the sharp tip of the needle. But an alarm, just for example, could say, look out, there's a sharp needle, right? Does that make, does that protect you? It just, I don't think it protects you. It just gives you information to stay away from the sharp edge. One of the problems with that people struggle with is, that, is how can you tell the difference between one type of risk control and another type? But ultimately it doesn't matter because what are we trying to do? I, when I teach, I always say, think about what are we trying to achieve here? We're trying to keep people safe. And you can tell the difference between giving people the information for being safe versus putting a, some kind of a protective measure in there versus eliminating the hazard. You can tell that the product progressively better and more effective way of reducing risk. So I say to people and my students, for example, that just use your judgment, use this knowledge about these three types of risk managed uh, risk controls to choose the best, most effective one. Don't be so caught up into which label should I put on it? Should I call it the information for safety? Should I call it protective measure? That's less important than the, the ultimate outcome, which is getting our patients to be as safe as possible. Okay. Going back to as safe as possible, you mentioned the kind of three different levels as far as possible. ALARP and ALARA. 
Do you know why the EU codified as far as possible? I don't know why the authors of it put in as far as possible. It sounds good to make it as safe as possible, right? That That's on the surface sounds really good. The only thing is that people don't know when they have gotten there, as I mentioned earlier. How do you know this is as safe as possible? And so for global companies, you have to be aligned from a risk management framework standpoint. I've seen a, a lot of companies just switch to the as far as possible, but to your point, how have you tried to demonstrate that? In one of my books, I have a decision flow charge for it. It's called the risk regression endpoint logic that gives you a step-by-step set of decisions to make, to go through, to, to decide and declare whether you're as far as possible. Let me just first answer you that you almost were, were going somewhere. Some companies have switched to IFAP a, a, a uh, as far as possible. People, companies who want to sell products worldwide typically just go with AFAP because of two reasons. Number one, if they want to sell in Europe, they have to be observing the AFAP. And otherwise, other than that, it's the most conservative. If you, Alarp and Alara are less stringent than, than AFAP. Now back to the decision-making about whether you're at AFAP. There is a sentence in EUMDR that says, reduce risks as far as possible without adversely affecting the benefit risk ratio. So that's one way that people have tried to determine when to stop. If you can show that the additional risk control that you put in is going to actually adversely affect the benefit risk ratio, in other words, it's going to either reduce your benefit or increase your risk, then you can say, I'm going to stop at this point. So that, that's one of the ways that people decide where, when they have gotten there. Another way is that they say, if we can conform to a national or international standard or harmonized standard, then we can consider that as far as possible. That's because the conformance to standards, particularly harmonized standards, is considered to be the state of the art in risk reduction. And if you can get there, you can say that's as far as possible. Not, maybe not semantically, but at least because you have now arrived at a degree of risk reduction that is internationally accepted. So that's another way of people try to ascertain whether they are at minimum risk. You know that as if you, sometimes you reduce the risk, you can actually adversely affect your product's performance and usefulness. If you make a scalpel, which is sharp, it can cut fingers. If you make it dull enough that it doesn't cut fingers, then it also is useless. That's right. Are there any other considerations in the, the risk reduction and point logic? Or is it the, without adversely affecting the risk ratio or meeting the internationally accepted or based on a harmonized standard, those are the two main criteria? Those are the main ones. Yeah. Yeah. In that flowchart that I'll show you later, both of those are reflected. The use of a national or international standards and also comparison with effect on benefit risk ratio. Understood. And then the, uh, moving on to uh, the last s struggle area that you had mentioned, benefit risk and uh, the quantification of benefit. Obviously I'm not a, a clinician, but maybe if you can start with the, whose role is it to quantify benefit? Benefits are typically not quantified. As you're in the medtech industry yourself, you probably have seen this. Benefits are typically qualitatively evaluated. 
but I wrote a white paper about a, maybe a year ago about the method, suggested method. But what is, what's, sorry, what is the appropriate word for, because, because you're right, they're technically not quantified. But I think what, where I was going to is like, uh, you, there's two sides to the equation, right? The risk is, is clear, but the benefit is the other part of the equation. So quantified is probably the wrong word, but benefit is demonstrated or benefit is, how do you put benefit in a box? Typically in clinical evaluations, clinical evaluators look at the benefit that the, I'm going to use the word, the benefit that the therapy or the device provides patients. Maybe they compare it with comparable options. Comparable options could be other medical devices or pharmaceutical options or any other, maybe even could be acupuncture, could be any other options. They compare the benefit that the device offers compared to other options. And they make a declaration that, yeah, this is acceptable or good amount of benefit. And then they make a subjective decision as to is the, does the benefit outweigh the risk? So it's because it's subjective, it's a little bit more dependent on the person who makes that decision, who makes that declaration. And the word ratio that is used in UMDR benefit risk ratio that implies some kind of a mathematical division, a numerator and a denominator, the risk is a number is a probability, but the numerator, which is the benefit is typically not a number. So how do you divide five? How do you divide, divide, I don't know, good divided by 10 to the minus three. <laughs> I, it's not possible to do that division. So I, as I was just saying, I wrote a white paper about a year ago, which I posted on LinkedIn and also is published in a journal. I can also share that with you later if you want. And uh, it, with that, uh, people can choose to quantify benefits if they follow that method. And then they have a number for the numerator as well. Is there any type of training or risk management thinking that's needed for clinicians to be able to make that kind of evaluation? Yes, they have to be competent, which means they should have the right amount of education, training, skills, and experience to, with that therapy, with that device, they have seen, particularly physician or physician, I'm going to use the word physician. Physicians who have treated patients with a particular condition, they have seen the struggles of the patients, the different options that they have used to treat those patients, which one has worked better, which one hasn't worked so well. And they would make a subjective decision based on their past experience. Of course, each, as each physician will be different in that they would have different experiences. They've seen different patients, different, some have good, maybe better luck than others with their patients. So you have to have a panel of experts and then you get their overall opinion as to whether they think the device's benefit outweighs its risk. So you know, ultimately it's a subjective decision. And then what about the benefit of a product that doesn't have any other available treatments? Okay. So uh, let's say hypothetically, there's a disease, there's no cure for it. And maybe let's say Alzheimer's, right? Because right now there's one pharmaceutical that came out recently, recently. Uh, there's no other options, right? Um, uh, then you have the risk uh, of Alzheimer's, the uh, progression and uh, outcomes. And then you look at the benefits of this device, how much benefit is it actually producing and how much additional risk is it in, in proposing to the patient? And then they again, make a subjective decision. There is you either take this device and let's say, hypothetically, I don't know, uh, let's say you're going to die in one year. 
or you can use this device and you're going to live an extra two years, but there's a chance that it's going to kill you in six months. So you're saying you either have three years or you have one year. And then what do you want to do? Take the risk or not? Moving on. What does a good risk management process look like? A good risk management process, I think, would faithfully follow ISO 14971, would have methods in it to identify hazards and not miss hazards, would have a good basis for estimations of P2, the probability of occurrence of harm, given the hazardous situation and the different kinds of outcomes. It would have verifiable risk controls. So because as we have to verify our risk controls for implementation and effectiveness, but sometimes you can write a risk control that would be difficult to objectively verify. That's another one. It would have excellent traceability. That is for every identified hazard, you have connections to its analysis, its risk estimation, risk control, its risk evaluation and verification of risk controls. It is well connected to the underlying analyses like failure modes and effects analyses. So you can see if a design change is going to be proposed, for example, to a design of a medical device. Sometimes people ask, how does this affect safety? Without that connectivity, you can't answer the question. With that connectivity, it's really easy to answer the question. What are you changing in the design? I can clearly just go to my risk analysis and see how that aspect of the design affects and risk, and I can tell you whether what you're doing is going to increase or decrease my risk. And I think another thing about a good risk management process is that it would produce a clear and concise risk management report that is understandable by a reviewer. We produce reports from our risk at the end of our risk management process that we submit to regulatory agencies. And in my experience, most of these reports are poorly written and difficult to understand. It's a struggle for the reviewers. And that usually would create questions and delays until they can make sense of what you're doing. But if you write a nice, clear, understandable, concise, and transparent risk management report, that goes a long way. And then after that, we move on to the post-market. Uh, you have to have a good uh, post-market surveillance system that has good listening systems and collects information from uh, many places, uh, proper analysis of that information, uh, and uh, also connection of that post-market back to pre-market. As you were asking earlier, how do you know your estimations are good? We make the best estimation of our probabilities of P1s and P2s. And then we listen to the market and watch how the device is performing. And we up update our pre-market estimations based on post-market data. If that connection is not made between the post-market to pre-market, your estimations will remain stale. It would be your initial statement and estimates, which may not be good. As far as frequency goes on that feedback loop, how have you handled that before? It depends on the risk level of that device to so say it's a risk-based decision. If you have a novel high-risk device, you evaluate post-market data more frequently, could be monthly, quarterly. If, as the device becomes better understood and more mature, you can reduce that frequency to maybe annually, even possibly biannually. 
So it, it's a risk-based decision and depends on the device. Thank you so much, Bajan. Where can people find you? They can find me by going to my website, which is medtechsafety.com. And you can, they can send me a message. I'd be happy to help out. It's been awesome talking to you. Yeah, you too, Sobi. Good talking with you.